to the 124th Psalm, <clears throat> Psalm number 124, one of the 15 songs of ascents of David in this instance, where we read the following words. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Thus reads the inspired and infallible word of our God. Now we have come this morning to the fifth of the fifteen lovely songs of ascents from Psalms 120, you remember, to Psalm 134. And we are climbing steadily as we come to each one of these different and beautiful songs of ascents, for you remember that they are songs of pilgrimage that we believe the godly Israelites would have used on their several visits to Jerusalem at the great feast where every male in Israel was commanded to appear joyfully before the Lord in Jerusalem. But I have reminded you on these Sunday mornings that here in these Psalms is not merely a physical ascent up to Jerusalem as in the days of the ancient pilgrimage, but here above all else is a spiritual ascent a heightening of spiritual experience as step by step and stage by stage these lovely portions of the Psalter usher us eventually into the very presence of the Lord and the blessedness of standing in his courts and worshipping him in the fellowship of his church. Now you remember that the journey began in a place of exile in Psalm 120, as the godly man set out on his journey to Jerusalem, it began in the context of an ungodly world where this man sought peace but found none and the hand of everyone seemed to be against him as he moved out on the road of pilgrimage. And then the Psalms led on to the joy anticipated of standing within Jerusalem and it was as though in the vision of faith he could see himself with his feet standing already in the precincts of that holy city, and he rejoiced in anticipation of one day arriving there and of the blessings that he would enjoy with all of God's people. And you recall in our last study in Psalm 123, he began to reflect on the way in which God was dealing with him and working among the pilgrim people.
and it led to that great prayer and cry of Psalm 123, when the psalmist was in the midst of so many trying circumstances and so much trouble, as he said to the Lord, I lift my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. And as the eyes of a servant wait upon the hand of his master and the eyes of a maidservant upon the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. And it was in the context of the watching eye and the waiting heart as the answer for the worn-out spirit that the psalmist came before his God, waiting upon him and watching with his eye upon the way in which the Lord would deliver his people out of the hands of their enemies. Now, it is surely no accident that Psalm 123 is immediately followed by Psalm 124, because the answer for the psalmist's cry of help to Jehovah is given in Psalm 124. The answer to his prayers as he waits upon the Lord with the watching eye and the waiting heart. And Psalm 124 takes us, therefore, to the fifth step in the songs of ascents. The psalmist, as he escapes from the hostile environment and turns his heart toward the living Lord, experiences the truths of Psalm 124. He is awakened to sense in a new way the dangers that he has left behind, in a new way to realize his profound gratitude to Jehovah, who alone has been his deliverer and his salvation and his help. It is indeed the song of the soul set free. Now as we look at this psalm, we see then the description first of the peril that he has left behind. And we see secondly the ascription of praise to the Lord who has enabled him to escape. Now we're going to look at these two themes from Psalm 124 together this morning. The description, first of all, of the peril that he has left behind in verses 1 through 5, and again at the beginning of verse 7. the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us. Now as you read with me the words of the psalm in the opening verse in our scripture reading, I wonder what your first impression was on reading these words. Surely they come before us like the gasp uttered by some escapee from a life-threatening danger. Someone who has escaped from that danger and who arrives as it, is, as it were all breathless at a safe haven and gasps out suddenly what has happened if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, then certainly we would have been overthrown and we would have perished. 
And this thought is surely reinforced by the great vividness and power of the expressions the psalmist uses in those very verses. Did you notice that both verse 1 and 2 begin with the suggestive word, if, if the Lord had not been on our side, if the Lord had not been on our side. And in Hebrew, this is the Hebrew way vividly of portraying the tremendous danger of the situation by the repetition of these very same expressions, as though the writer does not even finish the sentence properly, but speaks, as it were, almost incoherently, incoherently in the sense of his joy at the overwhelming nature of his escape. Now, again you will notice the great vividness of the danger that God's pilgrim people were in. As twice over, the psalmist vividly recalls that they'd nearly been submerged in the raging torrent in verses 4 and 5. Twice over, he repeats the story of their miraculous escape from the awful snare in verse 7 at the beginning and at the end of the verse, so that he's describing the awful circumstances which might have been. Now these are not vain repetitions, beloved, but they serve to depict most powerfully and graphically the life-threatening dangers that this man was in the hopeless case, and to emphasize that they had no source of deliverance but Jehovah. Now we need to look at three things, and the first of them is this, the historical situation. What could have given rise to these overwhelming perils? What was the historical situation? The answer is that we're not entirely sure. But certainly if the title of the psalm is correct and it is attributed to David, the great king of Israel, then it surely describes a scene when David's enemies were ranged against him. And as you think of the life of David, that wonderful servant of God, much persecuted, and apparently at times nearly forsaken by his God, you can see that behind and before his enemies beset David about, so that he was, as it were, a partridge that was hunted in the mountains. And he said, in a black day of despair, one day I shall surely perish by the hand of Saul. 
But if the circumstances historically were other than those of David, you can think of countless instances in the Old Testament that would fit with this psalm. When Pharaoh pursued Israel out of Egypt and the Red Sea was before them and the chariots of Pharaoh behind them and all seemed lost if it had not been the Lord. Let Israel now say, for Israel returning from the Babylonian captivity, 70 years of exile, a pitiable band of escapees under the priest Ezra and the governor Nehemiah, seeking first to rebuild the temple and then the ruined city of Jerusalem. And the enemies mocking and chiding and deriding them and saying of their feeble effort to rebuild the wall, why even if a fox went up on it, it would be broken down in pieces. But whatever the historical circumstances were, beloved, they were circumstances of the greatest possible peril and the most real encircling danger. But the second thing you know we are to notice in this description of the perils is this, the intention of the enemy. You have it in verse 2 at the end and in verse 3 and again in verses 4 and 5 and finally at the beginning of verse 7. Do you notice that there are four graphic figures that this man uses? There is opposition in verse 2. When men rose up against us, he says, to attack us. And it's a picture of vigorous persecutors surrounding God's people in that age and beloved in every other age of the church as well. Is it David, the Lord's anointed? No sooner has the anointing oil of Samuel touched David's young brow than immediately what happens? Powerful forces converge around this young man of God to seek to set him off the path of God's appointing and anointing. And Saul arises and seeks to pin David to the very wall of his palace with a spear and drives him like a fugitive out of his kingdom, the Lord's anointed. Is it Moses who has been called and commissioned? What happens? Immediately the encircling forces of the enemy conspire for the overthrow of God's work. Israel shall not leave the bondage of Egypt and Pharaoh's heart is hardened to that end. Is it in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and that glorious return of the humble company of exiles? They are derided, and their work is despised and set, north, set at north, and up comes Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian, a trinity of evil conspiring against the people of God. Beloved, do you see what he's describing here? Is it the new Christian, newly come to faith in Christ? Is it the new officer, in a step of dedication, having been called to service in the church? Is it a new step of discipleship that you, a believer in Christ, have taken? What happens? Powerful forces converge around you to oppose you and bring you down by ridicule and persecution and opposition of every kind. But that's not all. 
You notice in verse 3 that they not only oppose, but their intention is to annihilate. They would have swallowed us up alive when their wrath was kindled, says the psalmist. And you need to remember that in the King James Version, the word quick there doesn't mean quickly, but it means alive. So intent are these enemies in their opposition, in other words, that they would gobble up the church of God without even taking time to chew upon it. It's a very vivid Hebrew verb in that sentence in verse 3. And it describes the awful animosity of God's enemies and his people's enemies as they exert their power against the church like so many wild beasts in an arena intent to swallow up the victim without even chewing upon it and take him down alive. The picture of annihilation. It happened so often in Scripture and in the history of the church, as you well know. But you see, the third figure follows so quickly, doesn't it, in verses 4 and 5. And it's the figure that describes not opposition or annihilation, but oblivion. As the flood would have swept us away, the torrent, he says, gone over us. Over us would have gone the raging waters. In other words, in modern parlance, we would have been wiped out, consigned to oblivion forever. Because the vivid figure, you see, so easily understood by any Palestinian of those times, was the sudden cyclonic outburst of rain on the distant mountain range that comes down in torrents and flows down the mountains into the dry wadi bed below in the valley. And that's incidentally why even modern roads in Palestine today, I'm told, are not usually built in the bed of a valley. Because the rushing water comes down like a torrent and removes all trace of any animal or person in the dry wadi bed, wipes it clean like a man wipes a dish. And there's no way to escape from the sudden onrush of the swelling floods. Look at those verses again, verses 4 and 5. It's a vivid picture of a steadily rising flood of water. The flood, verse 4, or the waters. The mountain torrent at the end of verse 4. The raging waters, verse 5, proudly swelling up and carrying everything in their space. And it's a picture of the enemy's desire not only to annihilate God's people, but to sweep them away forever into oblivion. And in the church today, we need to remember, surrounding us is the same deep-seated hatred of Christ's covenant cause among his people. But do you notice the fourth figure that he uses in verse 7 at the beginning? We have escaped, says this man, as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. Now when all else fails in Satan's armory, he resorts to this. You know that in your own Christian experience. These other methods are seen and heard. You can hear the distant thunder of the flood building up and coming toward you. But this is subtle. 
This is unseen. This is delusive. As Satan goes out into your path and sets a snare to catch your feet in the way that you will walk. And again, it's so vivid in the original Hebrew. I'm told that in the Hebrew language, there are 16 different Hebrew words to describe a snare in Young's Concordance. A veritable spectrum, an arsenal of satanic weaponry that he takes out this trap, this net, this hidden bird line to catch the unsuspecting victim. And it's all invisible and apparently harmless and innocuous until we are surrounded by the all-encompassing snare and in Satan's grasp. Now, beloved, that's what we're to see of these perils. But there is a fourth thing, a third thing, I should say. The strategy of the underworld is laid out here. Do you understand what he's saying to you this morning? That what was true of the Old Testament people of God, beloved, at the Exodus, or when Gideon faced the overwhelming numbers of the Midianites as they spread out in the land, and were uncountable, or as David faced Saul and the Philistines, or as Hezekiah faced the invading armies under Sennacherib, the Assyrian leader. What was true of the Old Testament church and its perils is equally true of the church today. What is being described here is the strategy of the underworld for Christ's church. Listen, are you in Christ? Have you become a new creation in him, dear brother or sister? Are you on the pilgrim road that is leading ever upward toward the heavenly Zion? Then this is the strategy that you will meet on the way to oppose and annihilate and drive into oblivion and ensnare you in the hidden trap that by any and every means Satan might hinder you and bring you into his clutches again. And you notice that the psalm begins with the word, if, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, then certainly these things would have happened to us. And he considered what might have been. Have you considered this morning what might have been? We've come almost to the end of another year. Have you thought as you came to this house of God this morning, if God's eye had not been on me this year, what might have been? Because the strategy of the underworld for the church would certainly have triumphed, but for one factor. But the Lord was on our side. Or in that beautiful Hebrew phrase, quite simply, he was ours. And so you see, in the psalm, the cantor, the leader of the singing, declaiming his opening line, let Israel say if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. 
and then summoning the congregation to come in behind that opening line and thunder it out again, if it had not been the Lord, what then? And the purpose, beloved, of these opening stanzas is nothing if it is not this, to bring to our attention that we are a saved people and we're nothing if we're not that. And we owe everything that we have and are to the marvelous grace of God in Christ. Otherwise, we would have no existence at all. Do you see what I'm saying to you? So often we pick up our hymn book and our psalter, don't we? And we sing Luther's hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. But do we realize the truth of what we're singing and saying? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? If it had not been the Lord, let Israel repeat it. Then we would be in oblivion and annihilated and overcome. And in the desperately evil clutches of Satan again and again, the peril described what might have been if we'd been left to ourselves and had our own way. But do you notice with me, secondly, that there is not only the description of the peril, but there is the ascription of praise in verses 6 through 8. Blessed be the Lord, says this godly man, who has not given us as a prey to their teeth. There has been, in other words, an incredible rescue from a doom-laden destiny. If it had not been the Lord, we have read, a sigh which trembles with consciousness of past dangers, and now it merges with a glad song, praise be to the Lord, who has not given us as a prey to their teeth. And listen, listen you, while the thunder of the threatening flood is still heard vividly in the background, he begins to praise the Lord. Now there are three things said about this sovereign Lord who intervenes. I want you to notice them with me. There is, first of all, a merciful purpose that he has had in verse 6. Look at it. Blessed be the Lord, or praise to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. It is a reassuring word, is it not? A word never out of place, a word never out of season in the Christian's life. What has been the enemy's purpose? Why? To destroy, to utterly annihilate, to drive into oblivion. But what has been the Lord's purpose in verse 6? To do the exact opposite. To save his people alive. Have men risen up against the church in tremendous force? Has it looked almost as though his people are overwhelmed? Would we say in despair, it's all over? And oftentimes in the history of God's people, they could have said that. 
as they stood between the Red Sea and the advancing armies of Egypt with the noise of horse and chariot filling their ears. Israel could have said it on the borders of the Promised Land as it planned to cross over the Jordan River again and again in the life of individuals. They would have been tempted to say it's all over. And men's purposes have come within an ace of success to destroy the church of God, but for the Lord's purpose to save his people alive. Do you remember how I reminded you a moment ago of the words of David in a dark hour of his life? Surely one day I shall perish at the hand of Saul. But mark you, it wasn't David who perished, it was Saul who perished. Beloved, the lesson is we cannot, we dare not put an if upon the sovereignty of God. He is the sole actor in his people's deliverance. No human arm in this psalm is bared for their defense. They are left to themselves and no human power can rescue them from the rushing, overflowing deluge. But Jehovah, in a merciful purpose, has chosen in sovereign grace to deliver them. Doesn't it take us from the Old Testament psalm into the New Testament epistles where we join with the Apostle Paul in saying that glorious affirmation, if God be for us, who can be against us? And his help is always available, and it's always appropriate, and it's always adequate. Though sometimes, as here in this psalm, it may be long delayed. And we live in an amazing world today, do we not, my friends in Christ? Just think of international events, the fears of communism that many Christians had as it encircled one-third of the round globe. And then amazingly, in our own lifetime, the Berlin Wall began to crack, and it was taken down stone by stone, and the vast empire of the USSR began to crumble, and communism began to break apart. And there are fears today of Islam resurgent and what it might do to the Christian church. And all the time, God is sitting in his heaven and laughing at the ridiculous attempts of unregenerate men to do away with his church because he has a merciful purpose. He has not given us as prey to their teeth. But do you notice in verse 7, alongside his merciful purpose is his masterful hand. We have escaped, writes this man, as a bird out of the snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. And it's the second vivid metaphor which he uses to ascribe praise to the sovereign Lord. Do you see the picture there? Like a bird caught in the fowler's net, panting with fear and helplessness. 
And the more it struggles, the more it becomes enmeshed in the encircling cords of the net. And it's waiting the awful moment when the fowler's hand will come in and grasp it. But suddenly, an unseen power is unleashed, the psalmist indicates, and rends the net apart. And this bird, once ensnared and entrapped, soars to freedom with wings outstretched. It reminds me this morning of that old seal of the French Protestant Church in days of great peril and fierce persecution, the Huguenot Church, that chose as its motto a device that showed a net below and above birds soaring free from a hole in the net that had been miraculously wrought by the hand of God and underneath in French the motto my soul is as a bird set free. How often might that have been, beloved, the motto of the Christian church. Oh, Satan lays in the paths of God's people snares too many to be mentioned that entice and allure and entrap the unwary and we've all been caught in them at certain times the practice of some prevailing sin that we are unwilling to give up. It might be some temptation that we find very alluring and appealing to us. You only need to pick up the pilgrim's progress and open its pages and you see the snares of Satan set in pilgrim's way. There is flatterer who comes and sets the Christian up to be a great Christian who is beyond the possibility of falling or leading them into the alluring bypath meadow that looks so green and gentle, but leads into Doubting Castle and the clutches of giant despair, that takes them into the enchanted ground, where all is so drowsy and secure, that the pilgrims fall asleep and find themselves again entrapped by Satan. Oh, my friend, thank God this morning, that God's eye is not only on his people, but Satan's snares are under his eye as well. Isn't that just as well for us? Because otherwise, all invisible and innocuous, we would have thought them to be and tumbled in to the clutches of the evil one before we knew it. And as you've come to this service this morning, can you not join this thunderous accord of praise to God as you look back and see how often in your unregenerate days it was the Lord who took you out of the snare of Satan? How in your youth he delivered you out of the path of the destroyer again when in the slippery paths of youth with heedless steps I ran Thy hand unseen conveyed me safe and led me up to man. And how in your maturity and your Christian rightness, if it had not been the eye of God and the hand of God, you would have been entrapped again and again and yet again. God kept us back, beloved, 
from the path where the destroyer walked and rescued us even when we had fallen in to his deadly snare. My friend, this morning, as you hear the cantor proclaim that opening line, if it had not been the Lord, will you not come in behind as a congregation of his people and thunder out, if it had not been the Lord? What then? His merciful purpose, his masterful hand, And finally, as I close, there is his majestic name. Look at it in verse 8. Our help, says this man, our help is in the name of the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. We've referred to the French Huguenot Protestant Church. And it's interesting again to me But they began, and I believe they still begin to this very day, their services of worship with the eighth verse of Psalm 124. And no thought in all of Scripture, in a sense, could be more encouraging and comforting than this. Where is our help? In the name of that great God, the architect of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth the two great standing monuments to God's power. And it's as though the psalmist says, as long as I see them, I will never be discouraged and never distrust. Because the one whose handiwork they are is my God. And I have a personal confession as a Scotsman this morning to you that I hate the land of Florida in one aspect because it is so flat. No reminders of the glorious mountains, the emblems and monuments of God's power so the believer can look up to them and say, the one who built this is my God. And it's Thomas Manton, the great Puritan, who says, Commenting upon this psalm, O Christian, he says, Remember that when you trust God, you trust an almighty creator who is able to help, though your case be never so desperate. Where is the trowel, says Manton, with which he arched the heavens? Where is the spade with which he dug for the sea? He made them out of nothing. Now, says Manton, You commit your soul to the same faithful creator. And what the psalmist is saying is that his name represents all his attributes. El Shaddai, the Almighty. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, his people's peace. Jehovah Rophala, the Lord who heals his people. In a sense, all the specialists gathered under one roof when he is on our side. And beloved, what are human enemies when the architect of the universe is our friend? Our help is in the name of the Lord. Now as I finish... What might have been? Have you asked yourself that question this morning? 
Has this psalm's message enabled you to see more clearly the dangers from which you have escaped? Has it given you a new sense of the perils that you have left behind as you've begun your pilgrimage toward the heavenly Zion? And in your soul, is there a new awareness of the privilege of being a saved people? And gratitude to Jehovah, who alone is your deliverer. You see, this is the next step of a sense up to the nearer presence of God. All oh, the blessedness, all blessedness in a sense, is in that one word, escaped. Are we? Oh, celebrate with me this morning the redeeming power of God Almighty. Set the Lord Almighty against all the raging forces of an ungodly world. And as you do so, the blessings of this psalm will come into your soul. What is your problem this morning? What is your difficulty? What is your perplexity in life? Bring it and put it alongside this glorious song of the soul set free. Claim in Christ this promise for yourself. Ask him who made heaven and earth to meet your needs. And you will find that this omnipotent Lord will not leave you in the clutches of the evil one. Oh, may God give us grace, every one of us, to continue climbing in these songs of ascents, the song of the soul set free. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we thank you for this blessed portion of God's word and one so fitting as this year comes to its close. Take these truths, apply them to our hearts and sanctify us all in thy blessed and holy truth. For Jesus' sake, amen.